welcome to this unexpected uh, bonus episode of Sado the Sitcom Archive Deep Dive Overdrive with me, Eggs Benedict. And me, Alison Barton Simmons. This is one we um, have publicised that we were going to put out, but the opportunity came along and we're going to do it. Um, but before we get stuck into what we're doing here, I think it's probably high time we just announce what we'll be doing in Series 3. And it is, dear John. Yes, the Sado's voted en masse. Well, not en masse, but enough of you voted. <laughs> and um, it was a, surprisingly, it was a tie. Reggie Perrin and dear John both came up top in terms of what you wanted us to deep dive next. So we just decided to start with Dear John and we'll move on to Reggie Perrin next year. It's quite good, really, because we get to get, we get to do two that we know our, our listeners want to really want to hear us do. So that's exciting, isn't it? I'm very excited. I can't wait to get started. I love Dear John. So yeah, that'll be that'll be starting shortly after Christmas and it'll follow our usual style of, of watch along, listen along. We'll share links to where you can see Dear John online. And then you listen to us pull it apart and talk about Ralph, Kirk, Louise, John... And whoever the other one is, Mrs. Arnott, is it? The lady with the heart, yeah. Yeah, who was, ma- was actually married to Boise in real life. But we'll get into that when we oh, start. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's, let's just focus on what we're doing here today, first of all. This bonus episode is a, uh, is a collaboration that we've decided somewhat last minute to do with the lovely fellas Alan and Gareth from the British Sitcom History Podcast, also known as Britcom Pod on social media. Hi guys, how are you? Yes. Hello. Hi. Hello. Nice to be here. Nice to join you. The British Sitcom History Podcast is a very thorough, very well-researched and very different to our podcast, <laughs> which <laughs> uh, which goes into uh, sometimes two episodes covering, it's either a single episode or a double episode you do covering your favourite sitcoms of yesteryear and sometimes even more contemporary ones, isn't it? Yeah, what we tend to do, Ben, is we... We aim to do one episode, but we ramble on for so long that we have to put it in two because we, because we just got... Yeah, it was so never supposed to, to be two episodes. <laughs> well, you got so long. much to say. I mean, this is why we give ourselves bloody 18, 30 episodes. There's so much to discuss. Well, I, what, what, I, what I like about your podcast is you get right into the nitty gritty of every episode, whereas we take a bit more of an overview... And so, um, and so, you know, you can't quite, you can't quite get into individual gags and costumes and things. That's why, that's why I like your podcast. But the the way, the, so the way we structure our show is we will look at the series as a whole, but we'll we'll pick one specific episode uh, to go through in a bit more detail, which is exactly to accomplish that. So you can yeah. get into the nitty gritty of it. You can go into the scenes and use that as a way to say analyze a character or whatever to to create a bigger picture. And then kind of just give more information and research about the series as a whole. So we're, we're trying to kind of do both <laughs> in one go. Yeah, it saves you getting jaded as well. The last thing you want to do is pick. We're conscious of um, potentially picking something that we get really fed up of very quickly and committed to <laughs> watching think, every episode of. If you were in that scenario, let's say you get you know a series into something and you really are sick of it, do you think you would... Jack it in, or are you the sort of person who always reads to the end of a book no matter what? Power through, just power through. (laughs) But I mean, a lot lot of our listeners wanted us to do watching the ITV sitcom, and that's what 60 episodes are, something like that. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, I liked the idea initially of doing watching, but when you said how many episodes there were, I just pictured myself sort of three quarters of the way through. And and worried that it would it would just start ruining my life, yeah. <laughs> and I don't want that to happen. Yeah, yeah. I want to enjoy it because we we're, we're friends and and we want to 
our time together doing the podcast is, is fab. I love it. Um, and I don't want it to become something that I'm then going, oh, I just don't oh, want to Oh, it's his face again. It. Christ. Yeah. Here he is. <laughs> Here he is going on about this bloody Scouse sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just have a quick talk about why we're doing this um, this collaboration episode. I, I, I'm not sure. I know I use the word collaboration first, but I, I, it's got unfortunate connotations. I feel like I'm putting people on trains. <laughs> Collaborated. <laughs> yeah. How else can we say it? Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Let's say this, it's a coalition. Uh, that's a nice, clean word. Co- well, coalition coalition <laughs> post twenty ten. That's got negative implications for me. As well. <laughs> right. Well, okay. We'll call it a coalition episode. One of us has the power, yeah, okay. like David Cameron, and and one of us doesn't, like Nick Clegg. I'm not sure who's who's filling whose boots there. But yes, we're gonna we're gonna actually have a look at one of the ill-fated American remakes of Faulty Towers, uh, of which there were several. There was um, Amanda starring. B. Arthur, of course, which ran for nearly a series before it was cancelled. There was Whispering Pines, starring John Larroquette in the late 90s. John Larroquette's quite a good comedic actor, actually, but you wouldn't know it from watching this uh, this uh, awful remake of Faulty Towers. He's a royal pain, can you imagine? But they they, they <laughs> called the character, the, the character Royal Pain. Yeah. As, royal is not a name. I'll give you pain as a surname. <laughs> royal, no. Well, that's just, it's pathetic. <laughs> And, of course, there was also um, Over the Top, which isn't really a Faulty Towers remake, but it's based, it kind of nicks some of the settings and characters from Faulty Towers, which had Tim Curry and a very young oh, yes. Steve Carell in as the Manuel character. Mm. But the, yes. the one we're going to focus on today is Snavely from 1978. Mm. So Snavely was the first attempt to remake Faulty Towers and it's the purest I guess it was mm. made even before the second series of Faulty Towers mm. was made and it is the most straightforward hey let's just take these characters put them in America and it's essentially the same thing mm. obviously we'll get into the details of what they've changed yeah whereas some of the later ones it's much more adapted uh to fit like so with the Amandas for example it's just be Arthur she doesn't have uh, a spouse to bounce off of mm. uh, it's, it's just kind of Basil without without uh, Sybil. So that's a big miss straight away. But yeah, so Snavely, it was made in 1978 as a pilot, uh, and that's as far as it got. It was not turned into a series. Are you surprised by that? Well, I am a little bit, you know. I, I, don't, I thought it wasn't <laughs> as bad as I expected it to be. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. I felt similar. I yeah. thought there was, there was more of a warmth to it than, than Faulty. Especially the the the, Sib- the Sibylish character of, mm-hmm. of Mrs. Snavely just felt. Mm. I, I've got a I've got a, um, a a bit of a hatred for the Sybil character. I don't like her at all. But I yeah. felt like Betty White's <laughs> version of the wife in the in the um, in the sitcom. I think I think we should just I, call her Sybil. I'm happy with that. Just, just <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Snavely. She's called Gladys. If she you, is if called Gladys. Like yeah. <laughs> felt I felt more of a, an, an an affinity towards towards her. Oh, that's interesting. So I felt it was, I, I agree that it was very similar. It felt like a remake of, of well, it was the Hotel Inspectors mostly, wasn't mm. it? Um, but it, it, I don't know. It just, it just, it was, it was, it was like bizarro Faulty Towers. It just, <laughs> it, it just felt like it was in a different octave or something. It just wasn't quite, didn't quite chime. I'm quite looking forward to talking about it actually, because I sort of watched it and I thought it wasn't as bad as I expected. I totally agree with you there. Mm. But I'm not sure. I just I can't quite make my mind up over it. D- did I enjoy that, or was it, it was just sort of the wrong note or something? 
So, yeah, let's talk about it. Well, I think to answer your question, though, I am actually surprised it didn't get picked up because although it was sanitised for American audience and changed, I would have thought they gobbled it up. And I actually, in my reading, read that it was actually received quite well. So why they didn't pick it up, perhaps you can enlighten us later, Alan. Well, one question I have is, did how popular is Faulty Towers in America? And how popular was it? In, in Did that come later? You know, was Faulty Towers itself ever screened? Well, I think, yeah, Faulty Towers is one of those things that has translated across the world really well, like not just in English-speaking countries even. And yes, I think it is one of the kind of the British flank of comedy that has, has done well in America. Because there's a lot of physical comedy in there, I think it works. There's a lot of very universal themes of just anger and frustration. But there is something quite innately British about it. Mm. Very much the class system is put under the microscope in, in Faulty Towers. Uh, and and Basil Faulty is the epitome of the middle class, I look up to him, I look down to him <laughs> kind, of, uh, kind of attitude. And we see that a lot. And I, I'm interested to see how well that would translate to, a, to an American audience. Mm. Because I don't think it does, basically. But yeah, it was... I, I know Forty Towers has done well in America, but I couldn't tell you, like... Oh, yeah, by 1978, it was already there and doing well. I, I'm not sure yeah. how quickly. Yeah, it must have been later, mustn't it? I, I would assume, with them, with them trying to remake and Snavely first. Yeah, I, I would have thought so, yeah. I, I, I would have thought Faulty Towers would have been a sort of cult type thing that people would have picked mm. up later. I, I don't think it's ever going to be, you know, network prime time, is it? I, th- I think listening, looking at our um, stats for our listeners, we do have, we did have a big American pickup for Series 2. Oh, okay, interesting. Because Series 1 was The Good Life. That was shown in America as Good Neighbours, and we did have some American listeners, but you could tell that, I think there's, there's a faulty... Um, friends of ours over in Australia who run the sitcom Showdown, they refer to it as the faulty bump, which is kind of why we did it because everyone loves faulty towers. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. So you get a little yeah, bit of yeah. a, um, a boost by, by deep diving it. <laughs> yeah. So should we get stuck into the episode? and um... Yeah, talk us through it. So it opens, doesn't it, to, to the exterior of Snavely, not Snavely Towers, Snavely Manor. Snavely yes. Manor, yes. Um, it's kind of a nice looking gaff from the outside in a very 1978 way. I thought I thought I could see myself booking into Snavely Manor. What about you? Well, as with all American remakes, it just looks bigger. <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> the interiors and exteriors all look bigger when, you, when they go to America. Can I, can I jump in straight away? <laughs> the, the name, Snavely. Obviously, it's the character's surname. I think that's much better than Faulty. And we, we actually didn't pick up on this when we talked about Faulty Towers. But I think that's a crap name. Because <laughs> Faulty, it's not really a surname. And it's like, ooh, Faulty Towers. You get it? It's Faulty. Not quite right. Yeah. You get it? <laughs> yeah, you're right, actually. You're right. I never even considered that. Yeah. Snavely doesn't mean anything, but it is. It just sounds like sniveling and kind of. It's just a sort of grotesque word. Five minutes ago, we were taking the mick out the Americans with using Royal Pain. That's not a name. Well, you, yeah. I suppose you could say the same about Basil Fawlty, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Mm. 
I think it, it's one of those things that that now you see it and you think, oh yeah, Basil Fawlty. Uh, <laughs> and the, the the fact that faulty yeah. towers is even a pun is sort of lost. It's just oh, it's just Basil Fawlty's <laughs> place, isn't it? So, mm-hmm. But yeah, I do like the name Snavely. It's just got the right level of grotesqueness about it. Well, it's a bit snivelly, isn't it? That's snivelly the... and snidey. Yeah. What about the what? What the first thing I wrote down in my notes? The very first thing was the sign is spelled correctly. Of course, <laughs> well, that's no yeah. Good, is it? Yeah, yeah. That's no good. So there was no mailboy. No, no, there was no paperboy coming yeah. over and, uh, and changing the letters around. Well, they don't even get off their bikes in America, do they? They just throw the mail and throw the newspaper <laughs> from the bike into the garden. So Exactly. He hasn't got time to stop. He's American. He's, he's a busy, busy boy. <laughs> now I'm just trying to think of a well, anagram of Alan, Manor. I have done the thinking for you. <laughs> oh, brilliant. So, so Man- manly the, valor <laughs> I, I i came up with and when i say i came up with let's full disclosure here i used an anagram thing on the internet <laughs> oh, you cheat. what i came up with was uh, elvin masonry oh yeah okay von manslayer <laughs> yeah all right or man layovers <laughs> oh yeah man layovers is a good one yeah. it's supposed to be a motel yeah. isn't it yeah that's very good although you know, if we're going to be pedantic about it in Faulty Towers, they they sometimes move letters around and drop letters, yeah. don't they? Mm. They do. But yeah, that was the like the, the, I'm already not I haven't even started yet, and I'm already like, oh, this isn't right. This isn't right. It's not as good as Faulty Towers. <laughs> right, shall we go inside the building? Yeah, when when we when we go into the the lobby and we see the first scene in the lobby, the Manuel character, who we later find out is is named Pedro. He's sort of awkwardly hanging around, looking at the phone anxiously because the phone's ringing and he's obviously, his English mm. isn't good enough and he's he's very nervous about, shit, the phone's ringing, what am I supposed to do here? And cue Golden Girls here, Betty White, comes bustling through with a load of shopping and answers the phone. Uh-huh. Stavely Manor. Amazing. Mm. I love that. I was so excited to see Betty White. Yeah. Yes. You were, were you a Golden Girls fan? Al? I was. A, I was a Golden Girls fan. I loved Golden Girls, and so I. I just think that she's just one of the most genuinely lovely non-Hollywood, despite the fact that she's sort of centered in Hollywood person. I think she's just fab. Yeah, I like her, and I, I loved Golden Girls. That was right in my sort of era of watching. Yeah, staying up on a Friday night watching Channel Friday 4. night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. This would have been not too long before the Golden Girls began, I think. Yes. So she she looked very rose, didn't she? She did makeup and her hair and everything mm-hmm. seven years before she she tells the caller when she answers the phone roger to hold on while she gets while she gives pedro a toilet roll to take up to room 17 and instead of k we get sort of animalistic grunt from pedro yeah <laughs> he's sort of the same level of manuel-esque confusion but he's He's, he's, he's just not as well-rounded a character, Pedro, because he, he doesn't no. speak hardly any English. Manuel spoke He's hardly English. a character. It's, it's a shame, isn't it? It feels like it's mm. a, missed, a missed step right from the beginning. To me, this is one of the biggest... This is the, big, this is the biggest miss, actually. Yeah. This is the biggest uh, negative for it, is that essentially the Manuel character's not, not really present. Mm. He, he's called Pedro, and I, I, my first thought was... Well, that's interesting. A sort of a Hispanic character in America means something very different to yeah. a Spanish character in England. Mm. But but actually, we find out later he's supposed to be Albanian. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but it makes no difference because he never says a word. You know, he never no. he never says anything other than just a sort of grunt. No. But so, that 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 does strike me as we don't want to make him Hispanic in America. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that has to, like, let's just make it. Like, I mean, Albania may as well be a made-up country. 
It can yeah. be like Fredonian. Yeah. In 1978, oh, really? there are not that nobody's writing in from Albania to complain about the stereotype. <laughs> yeah. Do you think they were worried about political correctness in 1978 in America being a more litigious society? I don't know. I don't think they were worried about upsetting the commies in Albania. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, they're just yeah, they, there's certain people you're not gonna you're gonna press on, but. But also, uh, it has to be someone kind of alien. I think if you have someone, a Hispanic, there's enough of a Hispanic community in America that it doesn't feel like, oh, well, that's obviously someone's going to be completely out of their their realm and it's totally yeah. alien. Yeah. You need someone who's completely separate. And in this case, yeah, it's a, he's Albanian, but who, who would know? Who, you wouldn't have thought there'd be a lot of Albanian refugees rocking up on provincial America, <laughs> would you, but... I wouldn't have thought so. <laughs> no. Well, the the actor is named Frank Lelogia, which I'm guessing it means he's of Italian descent. Yeah. <laughs> so close enough to Albania, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's um the 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 one thing that I've noticed in attempts to remake Faulty Towers is the Manuel character is so easy to get wrong, and I think when we talked about it, there is a certain skill to that the balance of okay is he actually stupid or just lost in language and i certainly the the way john cleese justifies that character and how he says the reason that character works is because you never he never feels bad like you never feel like he's the victim because he always just takes all the abuse with a smile and a and a thank mm. you mm. As basically as justification, if you felt that he was being bullied and oh, I feel really bad for him, it wouldn't work as mm. comedy. Just true. It's a, but that's a very thin line, and even on Faulty Towers, they they tread a very thin line with it, and obviously with that, it works. It's easy to overlook how good Andrew Sachs is in the role, mm. and yeah. it's when you see Manuel done poorly that you appreciate the subtleties of that's of, of his naivety mm. and. In, in, in the way he plays Manuel with such naivety mm. but charm at the same time and the physicality of yeah. it, and the physicality yeah. of it as well w- one of the things I loved about uh, we're supposed to be reviewing Snavely and I keep getting distracted by <laughs> Faulty Towers because it's so good one of the things I loved about Andrew Sachs' performance is he would he was like a sort of child he would often sort of mimic Basil I remember there was one occasion where Basil's jumping up and down and, and Manuel's just sort of jumping alongside him because like almost like a duckling following its mum you know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he just had that lovely lovely sort of childlike element you know mm. I, I, th- I agree with you. I think it was a really amazing performance, and you can see the difference here. Yeah, I don't think I don't think this uh, Frank Lalojo is doing anything wrong particularly, but there's just nothing there mm. to do, is there? No, don't blame him at all. Yeah, it's 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 a very underwritten character as well. Yeah, mm. what they actually have him do, and we see the same jokes that we've seen in Faulty Towers. So um, yeah, as we see uh, Betty White's character, she does the signs where it says you know, the number of the room and up, you know, an up arrow yeah. saying, take this to this room. But in when Basil does that in Faulty Towers, there's there's a build up to it. There's It's time because he's on the phone. And so he's doing that because he can't speak to him. You know, it's all kind of makes sense. Whereas she's on the phone and then she goes, oh, just bear with me a second. And then does it to him. So like, it makes sense because she's trying to communicate him without using English. But I don't know, it just doesn't work as well. well. She doesn't do it in an exasperated way, does she? She does it in a very patient way. It's, it's, mm. it's, it, it takes the... Mm. She does it in a very civil way. Yeah, I mean, she's not even very civil-like, really, this character. She's more poly-like, well, I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to that. Mm. But she's, yeah, yeah. She, yeah. She's, yeah, she's very patient and kind, as you would expect from a Betty White 
mm. and a character. But um, I just think the pacing is the big thing that's missing. The pacing of... of yeah. Cleese talks yeah. a lot about the pacing of Faulty Towers. It's what mm. keeps it going. Mm. And here it's just very gentle and, and sanitised and Americanized. The jokes land, but it's more of like a, a, a small bounce rather than it hitting in the way that they do mm. in Faulty Towers where yeah. they're sort of like in-your-face jokes and... I think in in Snavely yeah. they just feel a little, like you say, more gentle, expected humour and comedy. I think. So one one of the main problems in adapting something like this to an American version is first of all your American slot is what twenty two minutes. Yeah. Mm. Um, it doesn't translate yeah. as well to like a BBC twenty eight minutes, and and you know Faulty Towers is always over filmed anyway. They always overwrote it and then had to cut some stuff out. And also, bear in mind, this was a pilot. It's not necessarily supposed to stand up as a full episode. It's kind of like, here's a load of stuff. Have a look at this. So they've taken a few bits from different episodes. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. So you've got to see it in those terms a little bit, uh, trying not to judge it too harshly. But I think, as as you you guys have alluded to, it's sort of better than I expected it to be. It, It holds together. As a as a as an episode, it's, it's watchable. It's it's not it's not an aberration or yeah. anything, is it? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I was impressed. And my experience with American sitcoms of this kind of era, especially ones that don't cross over here, uh, they're they're like this. They're quite banal and broad and don't not very interesting. <laughs> but but they're they they're fine. I've seen much worse sitcoms and this put it that way that ran for years and years if and anything Aldi, it's the yeah. type of thing that you like isn't it because you like warm cozy um I do. no peril kind of thing <laughs> yes no no mild peril i tell you what i did find quite comforting while i was watching it is that despite the fact that it's a different tv show it's set in a different place and it's in a, a different sort of venue altogether there was enough similarities in terms of where the doors were in rooms and the way that the mm. like the lobby looked and the way that the dining room looked yeah. that it felt recognizable enough for me to feel like oh i get i get this i, I get where this is based i, I know yeah. this place even though i've never seen this show before and obviously it was never to be seen again but it felt there was enough connection with how faulty towers looked and the feel of it for it to feel recognizable and and comforting yeah i did get yeah. the comfort i get that, I get that. it's funny you should say that because john larroquette's version flipped the the layout of the lobby, so the the desk was on the right hand side, and it just looked wrong. It's a bit like when I was watching the Daily Motion, <laughs> Daily Motion reverse versions that had been uploaded. <laughs> yeah, just didn't that feel is, right. Copyright <laughs> So um, the next thing is, of course, um, after Manuel, not Manuel, Pedro takes the <laughs> takes the luggage upstairs. As Manuel departs, Betty's explaining to her caller because we don't know Betty White's character's name at this point. We'll call her Betty White Sybil. She's explaining to her corner that, to her caller that they're about half full at the moment in the hotel, or they were that morning. But she's been out shopping. But the problem is, that every time she leaves Henry, who's clearly the Basil character, she worries about how many guests they're going to lose. And at this point, you see the Henry character sort of lurking in the background, coming into view, um, listening to Sybil Betty White flirting with her caller. His name, we, we don't say he's an invisible character, but his name's Roger, and she's sort of flirting with him. And, and, and uh, Henry is sort of mugging dramatically in disdain at this, isn't he, in the background? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you devil, Raj. Oh, Raj. 
were your first impressions of him? She's very flirty. She's very flirty with him. Yeah. Rog. She calls him Rog. <laughs> yeah. But I thought that was interesting, the different... Because obviously, oh, I know, <laughs> you get Sybil on the phone. None of that, and she's, no. And she's just, basically, the, the phone call is irrelevant. It's what she's ignoring is, is what's important. Whereas in this, is a slightly different dynamic. She's, she's flirting yes. with this other fella. And that's, that's kind of a different thing, isn't it? Hmm. I think when Sybil flirts, Basil is more contemptuous. Whereas this guy, as we later find out, is jealous. Yes. I mean, Basil's not jealous. Mm. He just doesn't like her bringing the tone down. But, but Henry, <laughs> yeah. right, yeah. Henry's yeah. like, oh, what's going on here with this Raj? Actually, I thought she was flirting with a guy called Raj at first. I thought it was like a Indian character or something because of the pronunciation. <laughs> well, Henry looks like a sort of um, a bit like Big Fat Ron, big, you know, Ron Atkinson, the manager, the football manager. <laughs> He's sort of all orange-faced. And he's... Ben, I think, I think he's just Big Ron. I, don't, I think you've added the fat there. That's a little unkind. They used to sing Big Fat Ron's Claret and Blue Army. I'm sure they did. He's, uh, he's sort of all, he's all orange-faced. He's got like a five head rather than a four head. And he's, um, his, his tie is too lengthy like Donald Trump. He's a bit of a mess-looking guy, really, isn't he? It's just a very poor video transfer. It's all yellow. <laughs> is that all it is, do you think? I don't know if he's that well done. I was well, thinking I, if he's uh, playing the Basil character, he might also share Big Ron Atkinson's racist proclivities as well. But, yeah, um, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, I, just I, don't just don't say the word. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, we learned uh, nothing from the major. <laughs> well, I think that we're comparing him to to John Cleese as Basil Fawlty. One thing that I, I think we probably didn't talk about when we covered Fawlty Towers is Cleese's dress his outfit his costume mm. and, yeah, and yeah. now comparing it what they did really well with basil faulty was he was dressed smartly but looked not not untidy yeah. but just harassed they made him they made yes. his costume look harassed which is quite skillful it was that manic element of whatever he was wearing just looked mm. manic no matter what what he had on yeah how do you do that with a Don't suit know. and a tie it's it's cardigan and he just looks wild <laughs> <laughs> is it the clothes or is it is it Cleese is it the brilliance of Cleese acting in that role that, Quite possibly. that conveys that? I think yeah. he's just got that kind of mm. body shape. It's just a bit too yeah. long and, and lanky that it's just nothing quite looks like it doesn't quite fit him. No, Harvey yeah. Corman's a similar body type, isn't he? As 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 Harvey Corman is our Henry in this in Snavely. Yeah. Yes. He's just not as gangly, I guess. But yeah, I, I think my point is it looks like someone's looked at Basil Fawlty and said, oh, wow, they've done a great job on the costume there. Let's copy that. And it just doesn't yeah. work. And, and perhaps you're right, Alan, that it's, you know, Cleese is bringing something mm. to that costume. We, we see at this point, Henry pop round the front of the counter and he pops down a very unconvincing looking goat head, which is even worse than Basil's moose in yes. the Germans. <laughs> I mean, it looks like a big plush toy, doesn't it? I couldn't it? figure out what With it was at first. Because it. It, was, it was looking upwards and I couldn't quite figure out what it was and it took me a while to realise that it was actually a goat's head yeah you never see it face on really do people put goat's heads on the wall is that a, th- is that well, a thing, no, a thing I, in the States? I, I understand that a, a moose head you know I, I, I haven't got one in my living room but I understand that is a thing that people do but a goat's head is that I've is that never heard of that it could be very hard to hunt a goat <laughs> could it I mean <laughs> maybe that's the joke he went hunting yeah. and that's all he got that's all he brought back <laughs> But it also it stinks, mm. apparently. The goat's head stinks. So it's not been taxidermed very well. 
No, well, the scene plays out where it becomes apparent that Sybil Betty White has been trying to get rid of this sort of dodgy-looking goat head for some time, but Henry's recovered it with with a view to hang it in the lobby. Yes. But unlike Torquay Sybil, this incarnation of Sybil, Betty White Sybil, doesn't want this thing hung at all. No. She's sort of against it, isn't she? Mm. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> Henry also gets some ex position in here that he he actually hates the hotel business <laughs> he hates the guests mm. the expenses he's deliberately rationing the toilet roll so the guests stop wasting it in a move that Cheryl yeah. Crow would probably <laughs> approve of eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. you say you say exposition there I mean he he just goes I hate the guests I hate working in the hotel business <laughs> yeah it's very, very clumsy very very clumsy. <laughs> it's, not, it's not subtly woven in but again this is a pilot episode you got you got you want to establish your characters nice and quickly hmm. so I'm not going to be too harsh about that and it is we we're getting quite a lot from his character straight away and, and this is what Harvey Corman does he's he's very big uh, with the character and I actually think that works really well what I really liked was the dynamic of the two of them because the way Betty White is playing it is quite deadpan. She doesn't really give much away. Uh, and and whereas Harvey Corman is very big and over the top. And that is quite Basil and Sybil, really, as we know them. Uh, Sybil has her moments, obviously, but largely she's the cool-headed one. Um, so I actually like that. I like the dynamic between the two. And this is, we get the moment here with them in the office together where we, we actually see quite a lot of that and we get to establish those characters. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The dynamic's actually quite good. It's different, subtly different, but it works, I think. It's it's by, it's far from being the worst thing in this in this pilot. Let's put it that way. Well, well would, would this be a good time to give you a bit of background on these guys? Um, Ooh, I yeah. did sort of... I looked in... I looked into the actors because obviously I'm familiar with Betty White to, a, to an extent. She's something of a have a, a living legend as as of time of recording still living yeah. and whereas Harvey Corman was fairly unknown to me apart from this really you're joking do, see this is where do, do either of you two know where, where do you know Harvey Corman from one one thing Nope. No? no, just me. Nope. He's the guy from Blazing Saddles. Yeah, he's Headley oh. Lamar in Blazing Saddles. No, nope. that's all I know him from. I looked on IMDb and I don't know him from anything else at all. But I instantly knew him as the right. guy from Blazing Saddles when I saw him. Yeah, I, I, that must be an age thing. Am I? I think I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not familiar enough with Blazing Saddles to remember the, the that sort of specifics. I'm afraid, but but yeah, he's um, Harvey. Basically, both Harvey Common and Betty White at this point in 1978, were at a stage in their careers where they were looking for something. They were looking for the next big show because they'd both just left shows in which they were well-established. Mm. So Harvey Corman was a, a supporting player on the Carol Burnett show, which was sort of variety sketch, sketch comedy. comedy. Yeah. And so he was a sketch comedy actor. And I think that comes across here. There's a subtle difference between sketch comedy acting and more sitcom comedy acting it's yeah. subtle but i i do think we're seeing that here and um he left that show after 10 years and he was a he won a lot of awards on that show for like comedy awards and things like he was a big deal and he left that show in 1977 after 10 years he was replaced by dick van dyke actually interesting oh, another living legend at the time of the <laughs> yeah, yeah just just about uh, and yeah he'd just been in blazing saddles he was he did a few of things with mel brooks 
And then in 1978, he got his own show called The Harvey Corman Show. That was a sitcom in which he was an actor slash acting teacher. So the idea is he's a bit of a crap out of work actor with a, uh, you know, and bothering his agent all the time. And uh, he lives with his daughter and hilarity ensues. Sorry, hasn't Michael Douglas just made that? There was, a, there was a, a program on Netflix. I, I'm not going to remember what it was called because I, can't, I haven't got a memory. But it was Michael Douglas who stars as an, an acting coach. Yes. And he w- runs a company with his the daughter. The Kaminsky Method. The Kaminsky Method. Yes. Thank you, Al. That's so much it. better it's memory than good. me. Yeah, um, yeah no, I, quite, I enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, that sounds very much like what you just described. It does. Well, they got in the 70s, they would have called that the Michael Douglas show. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> <would>. yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what they did. But so they made that in 78 and it didn't do anything. They did a handful of episodes and it just didn't go anywhere. And so he'd left this big success that he'd been on for a long time. He, and he hadn't quite managed to break through. And then Betty White, similarly, like Betty White, she's so old that TV didn't even exist when she started acting. She, she started on the radio. And, um, and really fascinating. I was just reading up about Betty White. Like you think, oh yeah, Betty White, I know Betty White. But I was reading about her and there's a lot more going on there than I realised. She was like a producer, wasn't she? She was she, she like an early female producer. She was. She was a big, right from the 50s, she she did a sitcom in the 50s, starting in 1952, called uh, Life with Elizabeth, in which she was Elizabeth. She was the central character. And she was the producer on that. You know, this is a very early sitcom. Mm. And mm. um, and then she had uh, her own show as well. Um, you know, she she's had at least three shows called the Betty White Show of different formats. And and yeah, there was one I was reading something. You know, again, this is in the fifties. A show she did, and she hired a female director. Like that was very <laughs> like crazy in the fifties. Mm. And also, they had a supporting actor. Like it was a sketch show who was a black man. And it, and like and some of the southern networks were like, oh, we don't want to show this because mm. there's a black person in it, and and she was like, well, tough, you got to deal with it. And like you just look into Betty White, she's on the right side of history, like all yes. the way around, like mm. she's all very pro LGBT mm. and all this sort of mm. stuff. So yeah, very very difficult to dislike her. Um, not that I'm trying. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah. mm. And then throughout the 60s, she just became really well known as being on all the game shows, all the panel shows and stuff like that. She was a personality. Right. Is there an American version of Blankety Blank? Was she on? Oh, the match game. Yes, certainly is. Yes. <laughs> I've become obsessed with Blankety Blank recently. I've been watching it on YouTube and <laughs> it's brilliant. I love Les Dawson. I love Terry Wogan. <laughs> it's just, it's absolute nostalgia for me. I absolutely love mm. it. I've, I've wasted far too much time this year watching Blankety Blank. <laughs> so yeah, in... In the 70s, Betty White, she she started appearing in the Mary Tyler Moore show, which was a sitcom. And she was a supporting player in that. But that, again, she was a big big, uh, performance for her. Like, uh, she became very well known off the back Mm. of that. Which she was anyway. But, you know, this was a big show. And that finished in in, in 1977. And so she was in really the same position. She, She got her own show called The Betty White Show, which was a sitcom in 1977. It didn't last. They just did a handful of episodes. So... They're both in the same position. Very well-known TV stars, but, you know, more supporting players, very well-respected, but they're not Mm. the leads exactly looking for the next big hit. So the question then, and and maybe we we should return to this question at the end, but why didn't it take off Mm. (laughs) with that pedigree as you described it? The expectations must have been so high. Mm. They must have sort of got in there with with such belief. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I don't have an answer for that, so no. <laughs> don't build it up. <laughs> I think these days it's very politicized as well. Whether you get a show or not depends on who you know a lot of the time. Just like the real world, the jobs that you get are less about what you know than who you know. Or well, that's it. I, you, who you've been with on the casting But you couch. would have thought that, the, that those two, as, as Alan's described it, would have you know been well connected. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, and and good sellable names. Like, you can sell this show on their names, mm. if nothing mm. else. So I think it's got the ingredients there. Well, at this stage, out in reception, a, a kind of Pee Wee Herman attired looking dude rocks <laughs> up, doesn't he? Ringing the bell, and Henry goes out to demand that he stop that racket and wait his turn before <laughs> turning on his heel and going back into the office, just showing his, his contempt that he has for all of his guests. Yeah, really quite nasty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not subtle, is it? He just shouts at the guests for no it's reason. It's not just snarky, it's or narky, I should say. It's it's just downright obnoxious, rude, and and Betty White Sybil responds to Henry's mumbling and gri- and griping about Roger calling by telling him that Roger was only calling to tell them there were three hotel inspectors in town. The hotel inspector. <laughs> yeah, it sets the scene. I thought the dude out in reception was going to be uh, like a Mr. Hutchison character. Yeah. Mm, and yeah. I, I thought he was going so to reserve NBC for the commencement of a television <laughs> feast on Squawking Bird. <laughs> but that never came to fruition. He was, this character was definitely Cribbins, Mr. Hutchison, but a much more sanitised and devoid of personality, really. He wasn't at all interesting or um, engaging like, like Cribbins' characters. That's a tough act to follow, though. When you watch Bernard Cribbins in Faulty Towers, there's a very much a sense of, like, I can't see anyone else playing mm. this mm. in this way. You can give them the same script, you might get something else, but Cribbins is bringing a lot to that. And the way that he... he you can tell that he's just filling the space and, and with, with the dialogue, like, he never really stops talking. And it must not just be scripted because he's just sort of muttering to himself sometimes. Mm. And... Um, and Bernie Cribbins does a lot with that character. It's a fantastic performance. Yeah, Cleese is very, very um, complimentary in the DVD commentary of yeah. of Cribbins' performance yeah. and that he recognises the brilliance of it, I think, and, and how it helped the pacing, which is what Cleese always talks <laughs> about, how it carried the pacing along. There's something that you guys talked about in your deep dives was the, the quality of the... Mm of the day players, of the people who just come in for one episode. The, the, the guest casting is amazing. They were all John Cleese's friends, though. They're, they're all like, <laughs> that's definitely who you know. Well, sure. Sure, but well, my point is it's perhaps a little unfair. It's a little unfair to compare this this guy, and I mean him no disrespect, but, you know, he's just a jobbing actor on a on a pilot mm. to, to Bernard Cribbins. True, and, and, and as is the case in all of these um, portrayals in Snavely, I don't really attribute much blame to the actors so much as, as, as the as the screenplay and the adapted screenplay it doesn't give them yeah. doesn't give them a lot to work with um, yeah, there's not a lot to go with is there there was one good visual gag as we were introduced to Bernard Cribbins where the, the goat's head is sitting on the counter <laughs> yeah. staring at the ceiling yeah. and he sort of follows the goat's gaze mm. up as if to say what's this goat looking at I, I, I quite enjoyed that <laughs> I really liked that yeah, yeah the, the actual the actor who plays that he's a jobbing actor but he was a comedy specialist and he was you know he was a well known He's one of those people you might not know his name, but you always knew his you face. Know his face. Like, oh yeah, he's in that sort of thing. Uh, that's the sense I've got from uh, reading about him. Jack Dodson, his name is. I think he has been brought in to to lend that kind of comedy mm. chops to it. It's a shame that he can give him much to work with, really. Then, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the the. It's true with all these characters, really. And again, it's because you know this is a pilot. They've chopped up three plots and sort of. Ch- push them together to try and mm. 
pull something in. And rushed it all in. Going back to something that you said before, Alan, about the, the lead being on sketch shows. I mm. must admit, now, looking back, thinking about when I watched it, that Saturday Night Live feel, that, that live, on-the-spot yeah. sketch mm. show feel to what he was doing rather than a, a sitcom feel to what he was doing. It yeah. did feel very like a live performance, if that makes sense. Yes, which... I have to say, I quite like that yeah, about sitcom. I like does. that about your yeah. more classic 70s, 80s sitcoms. It's in front of an audience, and I love it when you can really tell that they're playing off the audience, they're, they're, the rhythm is there. I really like that. Uh, and I think you do get that here, actually. Mm. And I've seen a lot of American sitcoms with a very blatant fake laugh track, and it's it's... A laugh track is something that can be done well. Like you can pump the laughs up and make sure it works and it can be done really badly. And this felt okay. It felt like the material was there. When you're hearing people laughing, it's like, okay, yeah, there was a joke there. I get it. Would that have been a live audience? That that wouldn't have been a laugh track, would it not? No, I, you know, I think this would have been a live... I, I, yeah. I don't know the production, but yeah, it certainly felt like a, a, a live yeah because yeah. there were times when i was thinking blimey this this odd they're loving it they were they were like hysterical have you ever been to a have you ever been to a tv um yeah you know, and tried yeah, to be the yeah. phantom laugher oh <laughs> it was um oh, it was at, it was at granada years ago i took a group from um, a youth club that i worked at to go and watch um you've been framed and i tried to be the phantom <laughs> laugher you know like do the laughing so i could go home and listen and go oh, that's me oh, <laughs> Was that Beadle at the time? It wasn't <laughs> Beadle. It was Lisa Riley. <laughs> I remember it. I went to teleaddicts in the 80s <laughs> in a, a Pebble Mill. Oh. My mum and dad worked for the Inland Revenue and some reason the Inland Revenue got a load of tickets to go see teleaddicts. And the best thing for about some it reason, was... You know exactly what the reason was. Yeah. <laughs> Noel has some <laughs> auditory... Exactly. Irrelevant <laughs> discrepancies there. Lobby Industries didn't pay much of their tax that year. <laughs> when we went, the guy from Heidi High was the warm-up man. You know, Felix something? Felix. Oh, right, yeah. The jockey. Was he a jockey? Have I made that up? Felix Bonus. Right. Yes. No, you're right. He was the guy who looked after the donkeys. He was warm-up man extraordinaire for many years. That was his bread and butter. He was very good yeah, at it. Yeah, he was known, well known for it. But a good a good warm-up man, that's that's what makes a difference. That's why when you're listening to the, the soundtrack and you think, God, these people are right. loving it. What the hell's, what the hell's going on? It's, it's a good warm-up man can take credit for that. Ah, good afternoon, sir. Welcome to Snavely Manor. I'd like a room. Certainly. <laughs> Will that be a single or a triple? <laughs> I beg your pardon? Well, if there were three of you, we could put in a cop at no extra charge. No, I'm alone. But I'm very particular about my accommodations. Yes, I could tell right off that you're a connoisseur of fine hotels. Well, I do spend a lot of time in them in my line of work. <clears throat> so this Cribbins character, um, whose name we learn a little later, he is he does have a very specific set of demands. He's clearly a fastidious mm. kind of character, like like Cribbins Mr. Hutchison mm. was, because he wants a quiet room, spotlessly clean, with a view, southern exposure, a king-size bed, with linen sheets and woolen blankets, and a bowl of fresh fruit on the night table. So he's, he's getting set up as this sort of annoying, very needy guest at this point. Mm, mm. Do you, would you would you say in, in a list of sort of things you expect from a hotel room? I don't think clean needs to be said. No. I think that's <laughs> that's, that's not a specialist yeah, demand, is it? You would hope not. 
<laughs> well, this this is like a roadside motel rather than a sort of English Riviera hotel, yes. isn't it? So perhaps it's yeah, it's less common for the rooms to be spotless. Do we know where we are? Do do we ever find out what what city we're in? I don't think we do. I think we probably would have we done if do it we? carried on. I was wondering that with the with what what I thought was the Hispanic character. I was wondering if it was, but but uh, yeah, that was a red herring. Mm. At this point, though, uh, Henry sort of is mindful that this guy might be one of the hotel inspectors that Roger has tipped off his wife about. So um, Henry gives him the key to his own bedroom because he wants to impress the guy, and he says, "We'll move out." <laughs> which is yeah. a little bit OTT. But it kind of spoils the point of like, oh, we're going to have to pretend this is a hotel room, but actually it's our room. If you just go to the guy, this is our room, we'll move out for you. <laughs> it sort of misses the point, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah, you're removing yeah. all the hilarity element, the farcical element of like, oh, now we have to get all our stuff out before he gets upstairs with the case. <laughs> yeah, there is. There's a whole episode there, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, I mean, he could have yeah, opened but, up... But that's what you were saying about crushing too many storylines. No, he story doesn't tell He could have opened up the, the, um, the, the drawer and found Betty White Sybil's dildo <laughs> or something, and they could have made something like that. Oh, no! It could have gone in a totally different <laughs> direction. So what would happen... Probably not very PG. Sybil doesn't know, and so she comes home half-cut, goes straight to the room, gets in bed with the man who's there, and she's a bit yeah. saucy because she's there drunk. There you go. Writes itself. Uh, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. But yeah, and then immediately after this, we cut to the opening credits. <laughs> Six yeah. minutes into a 22 yeah. minute credits. Yeah, they did come a little late, didn't they? This is a typical American device of the cold open, yeah. isn't it? Where you get yeah. sometimes this was about five minutes, sometimes it's eight minutes or so before the credits roll. And I'm like, yeah. Jesus, has this only just started? Mm. Well, mm. presumably there'd be an ad break there, would there? So yeah, you do, this, you do a scene get you no. into the episode and then go to the adverts because no one's going to go away then because they're in vault and they're entrenched. Yeah. And then at the end... Because yeah. we want to know more. <laughs> yeah. And then at the end, the epi- basically the episode finishes, then it goes to an advert and then they come back for like a 30-second epilogue which usually doesn't yeah. add anything yeah. to the show. But then it goes straight into the next show so you get that inherited audience. Ah. It's to keep you watching through the ads, isn't it, rather than going and making a yeah. brew. Is that to include hmm. more revenue from advertising to have like two ad breaks in one show? Um, it's well, it's, it's, that... it's yeah, I guess so. We would we only have one, don't we, in a half hour show? But it's specifically mm. to instead of if you put a, if you end the show and then have some adverts before the next show, you're going to go, oh well, that show's finished. I'm no longer invested. I'll flick around. I'll see what else is on. But if you end the show. And then 10 seconds later, you're watching the cold opening of the next show. Yeah. You're in it. You're straight away in it. And then you're like, oh, yeah, oh, you're actually, I quite like this. So you? I'll just you're watch it. it. And then six minutes are. later, when okay. there's an advert, you're like, oh, well, okay. I'll go, <laughs> well, you just don't I'll go make a cup of tea. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> I'm actually amazed that it never made its way over to Britain as a, as a marketing right. strategy, because it does make sense. It does. But there are, I'm not sure the details, but there are quite strict rules about how many adverts you're allowed to have in a specific period. And I think that is basically why we have over here. There are stricter rules about it, mm. so they can right. only yeah. fit in one ad break. <laughs> so, what did we think of the theme tune for Snavely? I mean, we had we had um, Harvey Corman. Is his name Harvey Corman? Yes, yeah, Harvey Corman. Yeah. Harvey Corman <laughs> yeah. and Betty White come up with with main billing, and then the rest of the characters. But it was mm. just the exterior of the of Snavely Manor, and there was a sort of happy-go-lucky. Very trumpety. It was very British sounding. Lots of brass and woodwind, with a, maybe a little bit of slapstick percussion, almost Terry and June esque. Oh, I yeah. thought. Yeah. 
This is really interesting to me, Ben, because you, I know you're a musician and I don't remember the theme tune at all. <laughs> like, I, it, it, I, got, I got nothing here. <laughs> you said theme tune. I thought there wasn't one, was there? It's really interesting. Your, uh, <laughs> you, that you, if you just bear with me, I'm going to look it up right now and, and play it and see it because I genuinely can't remember it all. struck me was that they were so different that the the the, the coziness to it was well, so reg varney getting on a bus <laughs> yeah. yeah i couldn't agree more very jaunty <laughs> reg varney could be getting on the bus and blakey could be mugging at the camera <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. it's yeah. very british sounding i think mm. where i watched it i think it was on youtube i was hoping that it hadn't been edited down to without yeah. adverts I, I really wanted to see some 1978 usa <laughs> adverts well, do you mean that one mm. with the American, with that woman going, "Where's the beef?" <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's another one I love to wear. It was like old granny going, "Don't you buy no ugly truck." American adverts are just yeah, they're, they're Okay, so we fade we fade in after the credits to a busy dining room where we see Connie, which is the Polly character, no doubt yeah. named after Connie mm. Booth, we assume. Yes. She's serving dinner and messing about with the flowers, and we get a little bit of exposition that she is there to learn the hotel business. So she's not a, an art student. I like that. I like that little change of character because we don't really see much of her in this episode. But let's think in terms of they were trying to build something for a series. It really allows the Basil character to to be mentor, and I think that suits that Basil character where he thinks, "Oh, I'm so great! I'm such a big shot! I could teach other people." And it means she mm. kind of has to mm. look up to him, especially if it's like, oh, I'm relying on him to like write a report to get college credit. True. Yeah. It means there's a there's an authority element there. She can't really push back yeah. too much. I, I quite like that element. I didn't like that they'd made her such an airhead and so vacuous. Yeah, I mean, that didn't. Yeah. She just seemed mm. very goofy. She was quite a goofy character, weren't she? She the way that she was laughing and didn't really seem to sort of catch on to what was what was going on and yeah she was very very different to the to the poly she was recognizable but not anything like the poly character yeah completely underwritten mm. a, a bit like the pedro yeah. character yeah it was very much focused on the snavelys wasn't it this, this yes. pilot I was, alan makes a good point there about um yeah. that could have developed and you can see how they're setting that up but certainly in the with just this pilot but i i feel like yeah if you were going to take that to series you would then look at that and go okay what does this character have legs? Maybe we need to give her a bit more agency. Uh, maybe we need to make Petro yeah. speak a bit more English <laughs> just so that he can do basic things. Yeah. I'll, I'll speak. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I did kind of like that element. Obviously, we didn't develop much here. Um, but we, we talked about in our episode uh, on Faulty Towers that my first feeling about Polly was like, ah, she doesn't do anything. Like, what's the point? And I think uh, then as you watch more, it's like, okay, you do need that person there. You need that kind of sense of reality there to offset the craziness. Mm. But obviously we're losing that with this character. And I think that the Sybil proxy here is the normal one in this bizarre world. 
Yeah. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. They've sort of swapped. Well, they've messed about with the, the traits of all the characters to, to some extent or another, but they've they've certainly swapped some of Sybil and Polly's um, character traits, haven't they? And not to the benefit of the show, I don't think, really. Mm. Yeah. Agreed. I think that's, I, I agree with you, Alan. I think that well, I think we talked about Polly being the the sort of the one who's not a cartoon character. Yeah. Whereas you know Betty White is Betty White. She's not a cartoon character. She's mm. she's well she's providing that link to reality. Mm. Hmm. What we're seeing here is is Betty White's Sybil is is fraternising with a male guest, and Ooh. this male guest has got very out of control eyebrows, hasn't he? He's sort of waggling his eyebrows all over the show, <laughs> um, overacting somewhat. And, and this is all to Henry's disdain, and it, it it sort of comes back to what I said earlier, that Henry's clearly got this jealous streak that Basil didn't have. Mm. He's really worried, and he accuses yeah. Betty White Sybil of fooling around with one of the guests again. So, mm-hmm. so in the seed that she's quite promiscuous. Yes, I picked up that as well. He seems a bit of a... I'm going to use a word that kids use. He seems a bit of a cook, doesn't he? You <laughs> <laughs> don't know what that means. I, I only sort of 80% know what that means. <laughs> but but no, you're right. She's she's very flirtatious. And I, I picked up on that. He said, oh, you're messing with the guests again. <laughs> mm. um, but then, then there's, of course, there's a punchline. There's a visual punchline where he takes his, his, his little uh, bib off and he's a vicar. And that's the... You know, oh, obviously, there's no sexual threat. He's a victim, which I'm not sure that lands <laughs> yeah. quite as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Still gets the yeah. meal on the house. It was, it was obvious why he was wearing a bib at the reveal. But prior to that, I was like, why is this old man wearing a fucking bib? He's <laughs> like a two-year-old. What's going yeah. on? <laughs> yeah. So there's a nice bit here, uh, which again, I it feels like an actor's edition as opposed to a writer's edition where. Mm. Uh, Betty White has a. She says, "Oh, just let me finish my drink." And he, so he goes, "Right," knocks the drink back, and then goes, mm, "You're finished." Like he's struggling <laughs> to speak. Mm. That felt like an actor bringing something mm. to the table, as opposed to that's not an obvious thing to write in a script. Yeah, I can't remember. You kind of went in more detail, I suppose. Is there any time in Faulty Towers where there's a possibility of Sybil philandering and Basil? Is he jealous or doesn't care? Or is there any of that at all? Yeah, with Mr. Johnson. Yes. Oh, yes. With his medallion and his and his rough charm. Yeah. Pretentious, moi. She's very flirty with yeah. him. But I think it comes across more as her trying to make Basil jealous and Basil just being irritated by her sort of mm. crassness. Mm. I think like that bothers him because yeah. this man's like a, a, an oaf. If she was flirting with like the Earl of Kuldoggan, uh, he would be fine with that <laughs> because probably <laughs> yes, like, yeah. that would be okay. Yeah, definitely. He would encourage it. He took her in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he would took her in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a real jealous streak to him, isn't there? Which, again, I think mm. throwing that in as a character trait could work yeah. if that's something you're going to develop over the course of a series. If you're not trying to be too similar to the to the original, mm. yeah, it could have took it in a different direction. I mean, you know, there's plenty of US remakes of British shows that do go on to create their own mm. mythology without wanting to yeah. sound too sort of wanky about it, like The Office. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the first series of The Office was obviously very mm. much based on Ricky Gervais. Yeah, version, and it struggles. But then they found their own feet. Yeah. Next in the scene, we get we get to be introduced to 
the US version of the Major, who's a very problematic <laughs> character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very. His name's the Chief. He's a retired police chief rather than a war veteran. And, I mean, he's ostensibly the same character, really, uh, at heart, because he's, you know, a poor memory, a bit dotty. He seems more aware of it. He seems more mm. aware of his of his poor memory slash dementia. Well, I thought he, I thought he seemed drunk. Mm. All right. Now, when the, and this got me thinking because I've never considered the major to be a drunk, but now when I think about it, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> a bit dotty, yeah. but yeah, a little bit, had a few sherries, you know. Yeah, uh, it's just leather. Basil Basil refers to the major as an old sotter yeah. a couple of times. Yeah. But when you think of the major, you don't think, oh, he's a drunk. No. Like, I can see that he might be, but that's not his characteristic. Whereas no. this guy, the chief, was like, oh, this guy's just an, an aggressive drunk. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, the major, you, you consider a, ra- a racist, but you don't consider a rapist either. Which no. is what this this guy, this yeah. the chief, he's... Um, sex predator. Yeah, he's a sex predator. Yeah. So our, our first introduction, <laughs> lovely little rape joke, different time. Indeed. Yes. What does he say? Let's have a. He says he's something to do a breathalyzer. It is to do with the breathalyzer. Yeah. yeah. He says that while he was chief, there was only one allegation of rape in twelve years—a very impressive record. Henry chimes in at this point, yes. and then the chief says that if that cashier hadn't pressed charges against him, there wouldn't have been any. And there's a big laugh. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Whoa. What the what the hell? Yep. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll skim over that. Uh. I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <clears throat> Pee Wee Hutchison, Mr. Bishop, he turns up down from his room. He describes his room as adequate and he's and he's seated. And then Bishop sort of cribbing lines from cribbins, no right. pun intended. That was very he's, intended, he's... don't you lie. <laughs> it wasn't. It's not even written in my notes. I just, I just came out. Bishop wants fresh veg, not frozen, just like Mr. Hutchison in Fulton yeah. House. Mm-hmm. Snavely assures him they were fresh when they were frozen, which again is directly lifted from Faulty. But then in a surprise move, the Polly character chirps in with that ridiculous laugh. Yeah. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> it's just been taken from Sybil and transposed onto uh, it didn't land, this, um, it didn't work. character. It just didn't work at all. No. That is all she has yeah. to do though in the episode. <laughs> like she doesn't this poor <laughs> woman doesn't get much of a chance to she was... Yeah. Very one note, isn't she? Yeah. I think, it, well, it's apparent, isn't it, that Betty White Sybil is a more sympathetic and normal Sybil than Torquay mm. Sybil. Yes. Which is probably why, why Connie's taken on these irritating traits yeah. of hers, so that we can relate more to Betty White Sybil. Yes. Mm. Whose name we, we do know at this point, don't we? We know that it's Gladys. Gladys, yeah. And that does that does strike me as possibly being, look, we've got Betty White, let's write to, to Betty White, what is she good at? Um, yeah. As opposed yeah. to that's Maybe. how we've decided to convert this. Like Betty White is a big enough deal that you just write it to her. Yeah, but it does feel very, it does feel very clumsily. Just take those, take those characteristics of Polly and stick them on Betty White. Take those characteristics of Sybil and stick them on the Connie character. And and you know, I, I don't feel like there was a lot of thought went into that. Mm. It was just a you know switch and swap. Do do you think yeah. there is a lot of thought into this because this isn't this isn't like. <laughs> A couple of writers coming up with an original idea and, and and trying to develop it, and then having to sell it to to a studio and having to really justify all your choices, or dare I say, have some sort of artistic creative vision behind it. This is look. This show is popular. Let's see if we can remake it and make some money. Yeah, yeah you're probably. And right. you just hire in a couple of 
you know, old hands, yeah. directors, couple of script writers, knock this together for us, will you? Write this, do it as yeah. like a Harvey Corman type, and and it'll work. It's a vehicle, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah, it's a vehicle. It for feels him, like they, sorry, Ben, um, like they've sat back on the laurels a little bit and just like the the expecting the vehicle to drive mm. itself, whereas maybe if they if they'd done a little bit more with making it into its own thing it could have been a success from from the start and actually become something mm. this this is a symptom of of the US approach to comedy though is they try and churn out 24 episodes a series and they don't take the time to craft six excellent episodes mm. there was a podcast David Tennant was talking to Tina Fey mm. and for some reason David Cameron had asked Tina Fey to speak in Britain to try and convince the British to take the American approach to, you know, churning out more episodes, okay. basically, so that they could... Ex- I don't know why David Cameron was getting involved. Yeah, what's he getting? What's he doing? <laughs> I don't, he was Prime Minister at the time, and he wanted Tina Fey to basically try and help Americanise the approach to comedy making. And Tina Fey said, no, we're all jealous of the way you guys do it. <laughs> yeah. Quite understandably. Mm. It's a, it's, there's a big financial reason. To, to, in order to churn out 20 episodes, you need a room full of writers, and you need to pay a room full of writers. Yeah. I think that's the... Yeah, problem. but a room full of writers usually aren't able to execute something that's faithful to the original vision. No, true. You look at a lot of the best sitcoms that Britain's produced have been written by either one one guy, one woman, Carla Lane, mm-hmm. or a team of two, like Esmond and Larby. Or, a lot of pairs, yeah. Um, Croft and Perry or whatever. Yeah, yeah. and John. It's tighter, isn't and it? And I think the, the other thing as well is that, you know, you get a setup, you get a, a, a bunch of characters and what they're thing is and what their story is can you get a hundred episodes out of that is is or you know is there kind of a mm. it's inevitable you're just going to be milking it dry after 20 episodes you know like we yeah you see that in a lot of um, us shows as well they want to get syndication which yeah, is 100 exactly. episodes so they're just going through the motions mm. to get to 100 because then they make a shed load more money when it's syndicated to other networks around the world it's a broken system i think really and why cameron wanted to instigate it in britain i mean why cameron did a lot of things i don't know i suppose it depends what your objective is <laughs> if your objective is to fill if your objective is to fill the schedules and sell advertising then who cares about yes. it mm. yeah yeah mr bishop which is um the hutchison character the cribbins character he pops out to make a phone call and uh, meanwhile, Gladys shows another guest, Mr. Foley, into the dining room and allocates him Mr. Bishop's empty table. Pedro comes over to take his order, which he obviously doesn't understand. And then Henry comes back in, demanding to know who this new guest is and why he's, why he's sitting at Bishop's table and forcibly moves him. He's, he's far more, I know we're doing the comparison thing again, but he's far more... He's far ruder than Basil. Basil's ru- rudeness is subtle, I think. Basil has his moments, but it's usually build up to it. Yeah, it's it's pace, like we've said, isn't it? Yeah. He doesn't go from zero to 60 in uh, such a pace as, as Henry here does. And Henry explains to, to Foley that Pedro's an Albanian refugee at this point. He can't speak English, mm. and you might as well give your order to the cat, Aww. which is a, another line directly from Paul T. Poor Pedro. But then he wishes him a bon appetite. <laughs> Is that how they say it in America? Bon appetite. Probably. Yeah. They don't even bother putting a French inflection on it. So there's there's a physical gag here, which I quite liked, and I can't remember if it is a Manuel thing or not, if it's new, where the man points at the menu, like saying, I want this, to to Petro, and and Petro just 
puts his finger on the menu and then tries to walk keeps to, his finger yeah, on to the, walk on the, to the thing. Chef. Yeah. <laughs> is that a new gag? I don't remember that in Faulty Towers. Uh, yeah, I think so. That works. Mm-hmm. I'm all right with that. Yeah, yeah that was I like that. It did work. It was good. Mm. But then they overcooked it. They overegged it by making him put his finger through yeah. the menu slightly mm. later, didn't yeah. they? <laughs> yeah. Which didn't really work. Yeah. Just as in the original, Henry is told by his wife that Bishop isn't a hotel inspector. He sells hardware, not not spoons <laughs> like Mr. Hutchison. <laughs> so so Snavely is is outraged that he was pretending to be a hotel inspector, which of course he wasn't. And he pulls up a, a seat right at Bishop's table to intimidate him, mm. which is a little bit weird. And and Connie brings the wrong order. Bishop starts complaining, and and like we're saying, the pacing's off because Henry immediately declares, right, Mr. Bishop is taking over and running the hotel, and he's almost about to assault Bishop before before Gladys comes in and and prevents that from happening. I didn't order this. Oh, I'm sorry, but you did. I changed my order. What's wrong with you people? You want to run this place? What? Connie, Mr. Bishop is taking over the hotel. I'm having his beef stew. It's not my beef stew. Henry! What's going on? I'm just making uh, Mr. Bishop more comfortable here. What you get with Basil a lot is the passive aggressiveness. And is that quite a British thing? Definitely. Americans are just a bit more in your face Mm. about things. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think that that when you said earlier that he's rude, uh, I I, want to say he's rude to Cribbins. Uh, I think Basil Fawlty is, he's not rude, he's exasperated and people just get in his way. Whereas this character is directly rude at you, mm. thank you very much, and it's yeah. just a bit. It just feels a bit more personal, and perhaps that's perhaps that is a British thing that passive aggressiveness. Mm. Yeah, it's it's far more obvious and out there, isn't it? Snavely's mm. rudeness. Mm. It's more aggressive. Yeah, he's definitely aggressive. Um, he's now attending to Mister Foley, who wishes to see the wine list, which mm. Snavely Manor doesn't have. Mm. It's just table wine. Henry explains. Mister Foley's not happy with this, so so Henry announces to the disinterested room that there's another wise guy here who wants to take over running the hotel, which is, again, very in-your-face. <laughs> bit much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Mr. Foley says, I assure you we are not in the hotel business, which sort of triggers something in Henry's mind. Oh, who's this we? Mm-hmm. Could it possibly refer to the collection of hotel inspectors? But I think that was poor writing, because surely if they're hotel inspectors, they are in the hotel business. So yeah. maybe it could have been a bit more mm-hmm. ambiguous with, with that statement, you know? yeah. The idea is he's, you know, so quick to deny it that he has to be... (laughs) Obviously, a hotel inspector (laughs) would say they're not in the hotel business. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) What Henry does at this point is, much like Basil, he he flips from being obnoxious, although in a different way, he flips to that sort of sycophantic, fastidious mode, trying to make sure everything is to Mr. Foley's liking. But, again, it's over-egged, because rather than just smelling... The cottage cheese on Mr. Foley's plate. He actually dips his hooter right into it, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before declaring yeah. it smells good, it's a little bit much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it like the, the gag of dragging his plate out from under him and having a big old lungful of it. A big that would have been that, that's funny. Yeah, that's you don't fine. need to have cottage cheese on the end of his nose when he puts it down. No. You know what really struck me about this? <laughs> the the man orders the diet plate. Yeah. yeah. What's a diet? plate? I wanted plate? to know what was on that plate. Well, it has cottage cheese on it, I suppose. That's your diet cheese. Oh. <laughs> How is cottage... Cottage cheese isn't a diet food, is it? It is in America. I don't, I don't know <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's not got bacon on it. Yeah. I just I just like the idea of, like, <laughs> I don't want a healthy option. 
I just want I just want to know what I should eat if I'm on a diet. <laughs> well, just give me the diet plate. Diet plate, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like a restaurant with one vegetarian option. <laughs> Would you like the lamb, the chicken, the fish, or the vegetarian option? Whatever the hell that is. <laughs> we get um, we actually get Harvey Corman's best bit, in my opinion. You guys might disagree with this, but um, Go on. Mr. Bishop shouts over to summon Snavely. So Snavely and and Harvey Corman sort of turns around and does a really really good <laughs> sneer, almost something mm. like like Gru from Despicable Me would do. It sort of turns and, and growls and sneers in the direction of this guy before he heads over to see what he wants. Mm. I, I thought he did that rather well. Mm. Well, there, there are a couple there are a couple of moments in Faulty Towers, aren't there, where you see you sort of see Basil twitching a little bit and type of thing. So so maybe yeah. that was a maybe that was the inspiration for that. But just hyped up to eleven, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then he get he gets physical with him, doesn't he? It all, it all gets yeah. A bit physical. Yeah. This point. is this is a, another example of just not doing the pacing. Mister Bishop's mm. dissatisfied. They messed up his bill, so Snavely starts to choke him straight off the bat. <laughs> just chokes <laughs> yeah. him. Not only does he choke him, he picks him up, punches him at least four times in the guts, <laughs> gives him a, a few slugs right in the midriff, mm. and then puts him in a headlock. So Bishop certainly has more of an excuse to have lost consciousness than. Mr. Hodgson did in mm. Faulty Towers because he gets yeah. a, a severe beating. <laughs> exactly. Snavely! <laughs> Coming, sir. Why am I being charged for beef stew, a cheese omelette, and a diet plate? This hotel is a rip-off. Shut up. <laughs> Bit of cheese caught in his throat. <laughs> Just stay calm, sir. We'll have that out in a jiffy. <laughs> I've written down here it was too this is too violent but, but yes but I think I think actually on reflection it's not that it's too violent it's 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 too unsubtle that, yeah. that's the truth of it it's just too Brutal is perhaps a better word because <laughs> it's got a double meaning, but yeah, it's yeah, unsubtle. I mean, punching him repeatedly in the guts is, I mean, that's the main problem for me. The headlock and the choking is, uh, well, I mean, to be honest, it's a little bit difficult to believe in faulty towers, but <laughs> punching the guest four or five times in the guts in front of all other, <laughs> other diners, that's just a bridge too far for me, I'm afraid. And then yeah, in the next yeah. scene, when we fade up, this being America, Gladys says, Mr. Bishop's going to sue us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's very American. And that's that scene done. We can move on. Forget that happened. <laughs> We've got a fire alarm to deal with. Yeah. Mm, really clunky, isn't it? Yeah. They've crowbarred in the second episode they wanted to um, adapt here. Yeah. And this is Henry saying he's going to impress Mr. Foley by running a fire alarm. Because obviously guests love nothing more than being disturbed by fire. <laughs> I don't really follow that logic. But um... to be fair, though, the the fire alarm, the Germans episode where the fire alarm happens in Faulty Towers, it's a whole hodgepodge of things. That's not a that is not a well structured episode. It's just like, mm. oh, here's the hospital thing. Oh, here he's gone. He's gone uh, for a fire alarm. Oh, now there's some Germans here, and he's doing a German accent. It it, it doesn't yeah. work particularly well yeah. as a structure, but. Uh... I don't think it does, and I think it's one of the most overrated Faulty episodes, yeah. but I was on the subreddit for Faulty Towers the other day, and it was voted the best episode in Series 1. Really? No. Interesting. No. 
Yeah. No, I agree with you. I, I, you know, it, it's certainly not my favourite. No. It's iconic because of the walk and the Germans and everything. I think perhaps, perhaps, uh, in, uh, relative to what we're talking about now, one of the reasons it's not my favourite is it's just a bit much. Mm. It's a little bit too much. You said that, didn't you, Al, when we, when we did that? Yeah, one. just too frenetic and just too, yeah, chaotic mm. and you don't know what's coming next and it just mm. didn't, I don't, the, the flow was just off in that episode. But I think, feel like this episode of, of Snavely is very similar. Things just seem to have been thrown yes. in and... It yeah. all just goes off, and you don't know which way things are things are going. Agreed. I think your phrase was migraine inducing. Yes, yes. <laughs> I found that I found quite a lot of faulty was quite migraine inducing. Yeah. <laughs> dear John will be a lot more gentle. I, I know. Promise. I'll be able to just lie down with a blanket on. <laughs> Amazing. So um, the Snavelys are busy prepping to sleep in the office at this point because, <clears throat> as we know, they've already given away their room to uh, Mr. Bishop, who they thought was a hotel inspector. No, they don't want to upset him any further after he's had GBH <laughs> at Henry's hands. Mr. Foley appears at this point demanding to know what's going on and Henry says, it's a test of the system declaring to him your valuables are snafe at Safely Manor, <laughs> which just didn't land, did it? Mm. You set off the burglar alarm. <laughs> What was that? Oh, uh, the burglar alarm, Mr. Foley, just uh, running a check on our security system. Your valuables are snafe here at Savely Manor. Now then, well, our listeners will know, one of my pet hates <laughs> is the fake Freudian tits. I mean, slip. Right? I hate that. I absolutely hate yeah. that. But, but very close behind it is the fake spoonerism, mm. where they do something like this, and it's just terrible. Like, no one speaks no. like that. No one ever says that. It's not a thing that happens in reality. <laughs> I hate it. Your valuables are snake here at Savely Man. Oh, my God, I feel dirty. <laughs> so it transpires that Pedro got confused between the burglar and the fire alarm. He's already turfed everyone out of the dining room when the burglar alarm went off before Henry had had a chance to run the fire drill. Uh, it's a semitone higher. Well, we don't get that, do we, here? We, we, it's almost the exposition is this all happened off camera. Just deal with it because it'll confuse you. So, yeah, mm. yeah, it is. It's, it is. Petro's ushered everyone out of the of the restaurant into the in, into the driveway. That might be funny if we saw that him panicking and running around mm. in a Manuel kind of way, but we don't. We just get someone else telling us that it's happening. Yeah, and then and then we get a flashback to the chief is a rapist joke when yeah. Connie declares she won't go upstairs to lead oh, yeah, the guest Connie. to the fire escape because the last time she went up there, the chief tried to give her a sobriety test which is the references the euphemism in his earlier story. And again, it just seems to be a very jovial yeah. joke. Oh, good old Connie being sexually harassed in the workplace. Yeah. Oh, how are we <laughs> And talk of the devil, the creepy old predator turns up in the lobby at this point, doesn't he? Brandishing a Colt 45 and yelling, you're under arrest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because he thinks the burglar alarm's gone off. Oh, by the way, we, we, we were still with that. Pedro... Um, when when uh, Faulty is trying to Snavely is trying to explain burglar to him, he says bandito. <laughs> is that Albanian? Albanian? Bandito is that what? Albanian? <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I have not got a word of Albanian, so it might be it might be Albanian for um, for burglar, but it sounds suspiciously like Spanish. Mm. But at this point, the pandemonium has led all the guests to, into the lobby, so they're all stood around waiting for the fire drill, much to Henry's irritation. 
um, just like just like the Faulty Towers episode. However, unlike the Faulty Towers episode, we we pan to the kitchen and we see Pedro's presumably is cooking up an Albanian stew or something. Yeah, we don't know what he's doing. cooking up a pan of. Is it a paella uh, equivalent? Yeah, of, um, <laughs> it's Albania. apropos of nothing that he just seems to be cooking. I mean, I suppose they've got no chef in this one. There's no Terry. Mm-hmm. No. But it just suits the mashed up plot that he is cooking and starts a real life fire coinciding with the drill. And just like in, in the faulty original, yeah. Henry slash Basil ignores Pedro slash Manuel when he's shouting fire, fire, and he locks him in the kitchen. Exactly the same, except yeah. presumably the actor didn't get third degree burns like Andrew Sachs. Um, <laughs> yeah, and a payoff. Yeah, and a payoff from the yeah. BBC of like 100 quid or something pathetic. Yeah. Mm, righteous bucks. Well, well, there's more than he earned for the for doing faulty towers. <laughs> <Probably. laughs> he's on eight, eight quid a week or something. Yeah. So at this point, smoke's billowing out of the kitchen and Snavely starts yelling, fire, fire, run for your lives. And Henry accidentally sets off the, the extinguisher directly into Mr. Foley's midriff. This is, okay, right. We finally get some slapstick, which is what I want from a Faulty Towers style show, okay? You need a bit of physical comedy yeah. in there. We're finally doing something, and the camera misses the money shot. <laughs> the extinguisher goes off all over this guy, yeah. and it's just looking at his face, and then awkwardly pans down, <laughs> like zooms <laughs> out and pans down. Like, oh, look, there's all the extinguisher fluid. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, I'm glad you picked up on that. That was weird. That was that, that was, I, I, and I thought, well, is that deliberate? Or, or did they only got one suit? They can't do it again. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going <laughs> I, on I here. Think there is a fair bit of slapstick in this, to be honest. There's, there's Henry gets his tie stuck in the drawer early on, and then mm. Pedro's oh, yeah, finger yeah. going through the menu that we mentioned. The assault on Mister Bishop's fairly slapstick. Mm. That was just aggressive. And then, and then here we get we mm. get Pedro hanging onto Snavely's feet, don't we? As he's dragged. Yeah. The, even after the fire threat has passed, yeah, he's yeah. I'm not really sure why that's happening, but it's quite funny. It works quite well that. But that's the beauty of when it when it happens in Faulty Towers. You know, Basil locks Manuel in a burning kitchen, doesn't realize it's burning, and then so when he finally lets him out, Manuel, and this is the crucial element of these characters. Manuel says, "Oh, thank you, you've saved me," or you know, wh- whatever he actually says. Yeah, that's missed here, right? Like, but that's the whole point of the Manuel character. You bully him and berate him, but then when you stop, he's like, "Oh, great! You made my life better by stopping." Yeah, <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. He's a, a, an eternal optimist in many ways. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we don't get any of that sort of the 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 levels of character in that. He just decides to fall to the floor and then grab onto the guy's legs. Yeah, I guess when Gladys takes the hydrant and deals with the fire, Henry's begging Foley not to include this in his report at this point. Mm. He's saying, "Don't mention it; it'll close us down and everything." Mm. But the, the the Foley character reacts very differently than than Mister Wolf in, <laughs> as we called him, in a, in a faulty original. Oh, so sorry, Mister Foley. Nothing like this has ever happened before. You won't put this in your report, will you? What are you talking about? Well, there'll be there'll be no charge for your room. You don't have to give us a recommended rating. You don't have to give us any rating at all. Just forget all about Snavely Manor. What? It's not just a business, Mr. Foley. This is my life. Look, I haven't touched the international hotel. I doesn't have to know you stayed here, do they? The what? The international hotel. Oh. <laughs> You're not a hotel inspector? 
No, I'm not a hotel inspector. I wish to God I were. Well, forget what I said about no charge. You'll pay like everybody else, you fart flusher. He says, I'm not a hotel inspector. I wish to hell I was. And he storms off upstairs. It's a lot more dramatic than the guy who was, yeah. who was in town for an outboard motor conference. Yeah. He played it a lot more understated. More bemused, wasn't he, that guy? Yeah. Which I think suited the requirement of of the script, really. Yeah, yeah. But, but well, look, it's just another example of this everything turned up to 11 problem. Yeah, he's, he's really quite hammy in his, in his denial mm. of being a hotel inspector. But this is this is where we effectively end the episode. It says, stay tuned, Snavely will return in a moment, which is what you talked about earlier, Alan, and there will be now a shed load of ads followed yeah. by a stinger yeah. scene, which didn't have much value yeah. in itself. I'll just cover it quickly. Um, the post-advert scene is the real hotel inspectors turning up, mm. just as Bishop and Messrs. Bishop and Foley are about to depart. And I think one of them, can't remember which, declares that Snavely Manor is the worst hotel I've ever been in. And Henry's yelling after them, saying, don't come back. But weirdly, I guess the, the key difference again here is that rather than look at Henry with contempt for balls and everything up, lovely Betty White Sybil is like, oh, come here and have a hug and consoles him and tells him he can hang up his goat and she'll even help and gives him a lovely warm embrace. <laughs> and it's like a lovely, cuddly, warm, everything's all right in the end finale, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that's a that's a good observation, Ben. Because Sybil would never have done that. She would have been with her in luck and just walked away, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah with her in luck, that's that's the that's mm. the Sybil way. <laughs> when I was thinking about with with our deep dives, we tend to do um, like an MVP. So mm. we. We we choose. We didn't do it with with um, faulty towers because it would just end up being Polly for every single episode. Yeah. <laughs> but. When I, when I thought about who would be the MVP in in this particular episode, it it would be the the, the Mrs. Snavely. It would be the Betty White character because of because of that. She just seemed far more a loving character and less acerbic and just someone that wanted the, the playoff <clears throat> between her and her and her husband was 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 fun to watch. But I just I generally thought that she was a, a nice character, a nice person. Yeah. Mm. Whether it had legs or not, if it had been picked up, I don't know. Mm. I think you definitely need to beef up the the Connie character, uh, make that a better character, and probably a bit more with Petro. Yes. I, I think mm. the big problem with this is that it's only got two characters, really. Yeah. yeah. You know, with a couple of other little sort of cipher characters. Yes. Whereas yeah. Faulty Towers had four, it was an ensemble, it had four, four main actors. And one thing that they always did with Faulty Towers was... Uh, not only with your four main characters, as in everyone was involved and you could throw in, oh, here's an idea. You know, the writing was there, but you could chip in and it was kind of an open forum. You have guest stars coming in each week. And because John Cleese is casting people that he knows, he's worked with before, he's bringing in people he can trust. Mm. So they're welcome to kind of go, oh, I was thinking about doing this. What do you think of that? Yeah. And But with this, you've got Harvey Korn and Betty White. Like I say, they're... Yeah, TV royalty even at this stage they're well known people and you've got that other bloke and that other woman who are nobodies, complete nobodies just chanting their arm at pilot season but I'm assuming you know, I'm sure Betty White and Harvey Corman are wonderful to work with but that's not a balanced system is it it's not a, a, it's not a system where you go, oh we better yeah. make sure these guys get some good lines as mm -hmm. well yeah. you've got two actors that you're selling this on and you give them all the, all the material 
And if anything, it looked like it, yeah. it was going to just show a, a a frustrated hotelier in a happy marriage, which wasn't no. really the faulty premise at all, was it? Maybe maybe 1970s America <laughs> couldn't handle a battle axe undermining mm. the male lead. Mm. I don't know. But I just thought without that conflict between, you know, there was a lot of sexual, repressed sexual energy mm. in Basil. Yes. It's just not, not evident here at all. He's probably getting his oats every night, this fella. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, what a beautiful 70s sitcom phrase, getting your oats. <laughs> um, um, Ooh, a bit of crampy. <laughs> why Basil works so well is because everything in the world is designed to infuriate him. Yeah. So his, wife, his marriage is, you know, a constant frustration. The hotel guests are a frustration. Everything about the hotel, everything he's trying to do, it's going to break or something's going to fall apart or whatever. You know, he gets builders in and they're useless. It's And as much as you can say a lot of that is his own fault and whatever. But that, that's the whole point. That's the constant stress, the stress, the stress. And we build and we build and we build until we get to a point where he finally breaks and thrashes the car or whatever. Mm. Whereas this, yeah, you, it's just like, why is this guy angry? He's he's got mm. he's got a nice supportive wife who's obviously trying to help, mm. and we don't even get, oh, I wish this person, my employees were better. I'm so frustrated by this guy because you don't get a chance to build on that. It's just like, oh, he doesn't speak English. He's a bit of an idiot. Although Sorry. you have to say he doesn't assault um, the Manuel character in the same way that Cleese did. Mm. There's less yeah, physical so. attacks on Pedro. Which I think is probably a good thing. I was always a little bit uncomfortable with, you know, when he like pokes him in the eye and hits him on the head with a spoon. Mm-hmm. It's just a bit much. Yeah. Well, I, I reckon like I've written down here the comparison, and you know, Pedro versus Manuel, Connie versus Polly. We've talked about. There's not really a comparison at all there. The the chief is a lot less. You know, there's no redeeming features yeah. about the chief versus the major. No. I think with Snavely, he is. This is a weird thing to say because we've just listed all the horrible things about Basil Fawlty, but he is sympathetic. You can kind of, you do feel sympathy for him because you see the circumstances that have driven him to where he's got to. Yeah, and that's Sybil a lot of the time. That's why you need Sybil. And it is is Sybil a lot of the time, exactly. But so without without that, yeah, Betty White's doing a great job. But without that instigator Mm. of Sybil. He's yeah. just—he's just a horrible bloke. Yeah. That's not—that's not good enough. That's not—that's not—that's not subtle enough. It'd be interesting to to compare and contrast against the uh, the other versions, but I'm not sure I've got it in me to sit through <laughs> Amanda's and talk yeah. about it for two hours. Yeah. To be honest with you, <laughs> no, no, no. I, th- I, th- I think we've I think we've we've uh, we've we've done the US versions here. <laughs> I don't think we need this to be a, an annual. Yeah, thing. we've kicked the arse out of it. <laughs> Well, it's time to take a little trip to the place that long ago was hip. It's Fashion Corner. It's Fashion Corner. It's Fashion Corner. Fashion Corner. So as with Faulty Towers, Snavely set during the late 1970s, so the dress and the fashions that were on show in this episode were quite recognisable. Although I was interested before I started to see the potential differences, if there were any, between the styles of the UK and the USA. Mm. Um, we found that sort of at the tail end of the 70s in, in Faulty Towers, um, there were lots of block colours and um, I was interested to see whether that was something that transferred across... Um, across to the states um there were lots of floaty fabrics Mm. floaty man-made fabrics um 
I should add, on display, which were obviously de rigueur at the time and were quite apparent in Faulty Towers. Um, so on both sides of the Atlantic, um, they were probably advised to not see it, sit near any um, like open flames because it, everything <laughs> would have just gone up, I think. Do you know what? I thought that, actually, when uh, Petro accidentally starts the fire. <laughs> yes! I just, I thought his hair looks very fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just gone. Like Michael Jackson and Pepsi advert. <laughs> like, oh, God. Exactly, yeah. It was just a bit too... I was worried. <laughs> well, that leads me in nicely to, to Petro, actually. Um, so, like the, the Manuel character, um, he's dressed in, in what we recognise as being sort of like that bellboy waiter hotel uniform although they have done a massive transformation and he's, he's sort of gone from the, the chef's whites look that he had um, to this strong mustard yellow colour of jacket very striking very a completely striking. shapeless jacket it was well. it's yeah it was wearing. it was like he was like a small child wearing his dad's suit just very sort of <laughs> boxy looking with like a black trim around around the cuffs um, so that straight away was something that was markedly different what I what I like about Manuel actually is that when we see him relaxing in Basil the Rat yes. in his bedroom he's got his work clothes on underneath his dressing, <laughs> underneath gown. His dressing gown I loved that because um, he can just take it off at like a moment's notice and then rush back yeah. down and just carry on with his job which I'm sure so he, sweet. probably happened that's the, that's the word I kept using about Manuel. He's just so sweet. He is so sweet. He is so sweet. <laughs> and that's what I think this character didn't have. It didn't have no. that sweetness to it, unfortunately. Yeah. Whether that would have happened or not, I don't know. Mrs. Snavely in the opening scenes is in like a, del- a delicate pale blue. It was hard to tell whether it was a pale blue or a white. It could have been a combination of both. Blows and skirt combo with a floral pattern that ran across the front of the blows and across the back as well. Uh, and in keeping with um, the design of the times, had this big open collar. The blouse is very light and floaty, and the skirt, which was in like a matching baby blue collar, had a tight waist. She also appears later on post dinner in a pale turquoise collared skirt suit with what I've recently found out are called Bishop Sleeves. Not Mr. Bishop, oh. but Bishop Sleeves. <laughs> These sort of like baggy, with like a cuff and then like baggy, baggy arms to them. Um, so there so is you can a name. Hide your Bible up there. There is a name. Yeah, there's a name. I thought those. they were called wizard sleeves, but then that's used as a euphemism for something else, isn't it? <laughs> not when you're referring to Betty White, no. no. <laughs> Mr. Snavely had the, I don't know what I what I see as being a typical 1970s combo of powder blue slacks and lemon yellow shirt, which <laughs> which you see, I don't know. I, I just picture. Um, like a lineup picture in a golf club in the seventies, and everyone having oh, having them slacks yes. and that colour of, of of shirt. And he also adds a powder blue jacket later on in the scene with a bright red carnation, which is something else I sort of think about with with I think of Ted Borvis from uh, Heidi High with, <laughs> no, with a, a red a great the red carnation <laughs> yeah, lingering. Yeah, that's a really good that's a really good comparison. I like it. Connie, the Connie character, obviously, she, yep, she's, um, we didn't sort of hear much from her or get much development from her character. However, she is, bizarrely, she was she was dressed in like a, this like floral blouse and a powder pink skirt for her job and, and waitressing. But there was no real, it didn't point to what she did within the hotel until they put that Victorian style maid hat on which then indicated <laughs> she's going to yeah. be a waitress that's what she does yeah so it was like a really odd juxtaposition i thought of this modern looking 70s attire with this old-fashioned headwear 
which I think I think that was the, the only thing that was there for was to go ah that's Polly that's the Polly character so uh, oh, by that definition if the hat defines the waitress yes could she have been wearing literally anything but with that hat on and you would have and you would have not I, I think she could have <laughs> yes I think she could yeah, okay. I think it was the the the, the <laughs> And it, and it felt like a prop. It felt more like a prop yeah. than, a, than than fashion. It felt like it was just an indicator of this is who this is. This is the this is the waitress. Everybody. Okay. Um, Mr. Snavely appears later on again um, in, in a more somber suit. It's like a fawn brown colour when he's when he's sort of like being more action hotelier rather than mm-hmm. relaxed hotelier. I felt, and he had a pale blue shirt and a blue tie on as well. That that felt that that suit felt very nineteen seventy eight. Like, yeah, that colour. You know, it, you know, it reminded me of uh, you know Joe Wilkinson, the comedian. He always wears that horrible brown suit, <laughs> <laughs> but but which is you know funny because it's dated. Yes, <laughs> like that, yes. That's the joke. It's a very that colour is is very set in that time. Yes, yeah. If you had like a, a like a, a timeline, it would it yeah, would fit yeah. within the seventies. That that colour. Mm-hmm. Um, special, just finally, special mentions to a few items that I spotted um, as I was watching. The Vickers plastic lobster bib. I thought. Mm. Um, I think any food that requires an adult <laughs> bib is is that's. I'm, I'm I'm all for that. It's thumbs up from me. And I did like the joke of the fact that it was hiding the priest's dog collar underneath. Thought that was quite mm. a quite a good visual gag. The chief's cardigan. You might have missed it, but but it was one of those. Um, sort of, I remember my granddad having one in the 80s and it was like a, a zip-up cardigan with a pattern on the front that men of a certain age wore. And they just, my granddad used to put it on over, we, we've talked about this in, in, in the podcast, about men of a certain age who would always dress in shirt and tie no matter what. Yeah. Even if they'd been retired 10 years in the 80s, mm, they would yeah. still have a shirt and tie on. And then you put on this like occasion cardigan that just zips up and covers everything up. And it's it's yeah. just for, for, for doing anything. In. You could go out for a meal, you could be in the garden, you could be doing anything in that uh, in that occasion cardigan. And the chief had one of those on. And finally, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Foley's glasses. I've gone to town on this, actually. Mr. Foley? Mr. Yeah. Foley? Mr. Foley. Mr. Foley's glasses. Yeah, he, he had these kind of thick rimmed version of aviator glasses I'm, I'm quite, I, I like glasses I do like glasses so I notice people's glasses interesting okay um, and they were they're, they're quite large frames and they had like this extra brow bar across the top which you see on aviator glasses yes um, and for years this style in my humble opinion gave off a bit of a 1970s serial killer vibe <laughs> and and if you you sort of <laughs> I know what you mean now that you've said it yeah you see pictures of like Dennis Nielsen that them glasses and that they are of uh, they are of a of a type of person in in my opinion Um, however in recent times I think these glasses are making a comeback because I seem to see them everywhere at the moment I think even like high end fashion houses like Gucci are now bringing back these not the thin framed wire gold glasses but more of a chunky version of these aviator glasses and when i saw them on this character i thought god they would they would work now i could see i could see someone wearing those now and in fact in house of gucci which is out this month starring adam driver he has these glasses on and obviously this film is set in the same time period that snavely would have been mm-hmm. But I can see these glasses now making a massive comeback because of somebody like Adam Driver Interesting. wearing them on the big screen. So yeah, I was I was yeah massively in love with these glasses. I'm pretty sure that those glasses were were worn by the American guest in Faulty Towers as well, weren't they? Yes, they were. 
they were oh, yeah, worn by they were, him. Yes. yes, but they were like a like a the wire thin wire version, almost like um, the guy off Jaws, which he, he reminds me of. Oh, um, Roy Schneider. Yes, yes. I, if, if I think of Roy Schneider, I think of those glasses. So they were very, very big. They were quite iconic and and point hot dog point to the seventies. But I think they're something <laughs> that would make a comeback in their more chunky form and less serial killer looking. <laughs> They're not just for serial killers. They're for anyone now. Anyone can wear them. <laughs> <laughs> what about props? Was there any any nineteen seventies props that you noticed? That anyone noticed that jumped out at you? I've got one. When um, Snavely was at the desk signing in one of the guests, and he was sort of making notes on 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 a sort of wooden bureau type thing that was sat on top of the counter and then he spun the thing around 180 degrees so that the, so that the customer <laughs> could, could sign the bit of paper i thought that was brilliant it was like a it was like a, a rotational bureau oh, i like everything in the 70s rotated and i love that we had we had um <laughs> yes. uh, it was called right it, it was called a party susan and it's what you put all your you you <laughs> your nuts and your crisps in, and it, you put it uh-huh. in the middle of the table and you spun it round. And I th- was it? It was called. It was. Was it called a party? Was it a party Susan? Is it a lazy? It was Susan? a lazy Susan. But in my yes. house, we called it yes. a party Susan, and nobody else in the world <laughs> called it that. And I just, yeah, because it was for pies. Do you know what? That is a really that is a really sound observation. Everything in the seventies rotated. You were so- yeah. <laughs> You are so right. <laughs> Whenever you tell that story about the about the um, the party, Susan, I'm reminded of that of that hashtag uh, for Susan Boyle's album party, Susan Album Party. Susan Album Party. Hashtag Party Susan. <laughs> so thanks for joining us, Alan and Gareth. A pleasure. Thank you. I expect we'll put them out as Christmas specials, I think, and then we'll get into Dear John in the new year. On the subject of Dear John, before we get stuck into the first episode of Dear John, um, Gareth and Alan have kindly saved us the bother of having to do a generic overview of of Dear John (laughs) by doing it on their podcast. So do look up the British Sitcom History Podcast, uh, Britcom Pod, on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, Britcom Pod on Facebook and Instagram. And we've got, if you look at British Sitcom History Podcast on Facebook, we're on there as well. Uh, so you've got two episodes dedicated to Dear John. You've got two episodes dedicated to Faulty Towers. Mm-hmm. We've got two episodes dedicated to Only Fools and Horses, the Grandad years. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to the to the Uncle Albert years. Yeah, yeah, we'll be doing mm-hmm. those again. Lots to jump into, and it's a really, really well researched and very thorough. And like I say, everything that we're not. So give them a try. They're, they're excellent, <laughs> and we'll be back with. The first episode of Dear John, probably mid-January, I think, Al. Is that fair-ish? Yes. <laughs> A tentative yes. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>